Thank you so much for coming today. We have uh, today everybody together uh, because the first build and wellspring of the year, we, we um, just put the men and the women together for the instruction time so that we can cover um, how build and wellspring, those two ministries, how do they fit into what Grace Bible Church is doing all together. So what we're going to do is we're going to cover that first this morning. And then uh, a little bit later in the morning, we're going to split into our two groups. The guys, you'll just stay here. And the gals, you're going to go a few rooms down the hallway uh, to where the sevens meet. I don't know what the room number is, but it says sevens on it, okay? Um, Just a couple house cleaning things or house, not cleaning, (laughs) housekeeping. There will be house cleaning afterwards because we have to be ready for church too tomorrow. Uh, housekeeping first, if you want to know where the restrooms are, what we're trying to do today is use the ones that are just straight back in the building, the, the older ones, not the new ones that we built out there. We can use those, and then we have to clean them if we use them. They were cleaned yesterday for Sunday, so the point is after today, uh, we need to be Sunday ready. So if we want to just use the ones that are straight at the back of the hall, you just work you know, straight past the kitchen, and there's two sets of bathrooms back there. That would be great. You may get up and get whatever you need at any time. Uh, this, I want you to feel like this is your living room in one sense where uh, you just make yourself at home. If you need to get up and uh, go get some more eat or drink stuff, please do that. Make yourself at home, okay? Um, and the lady who walked in and held up the papers, her name is Lori Hantla. For those of you ladies, she's like your... A leader in charge today and will guide you through whatever you need. If you have any questions, you can talk with her. All right. Well, let's do this. Let's pray. And then we're just going to dive right into uh, our time together in the Word. Come on in, David. Uh, good luck finding a spot. There's some over here. Oh, here's one right here, too. Or oh, right there. You're good to go. There you go. All right. Well, let's do this. Let's pray. And then we'll begin our time together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, the chance just to be together this morning. Lord, what a, what a joy it is to my heart to see so many women and men together this morning. Uh, that we might draw near to you through your word and um, seek your face. Lord, we thank you so much for your Bible. Um, you have revealed yourself to us there more clearly than any place else. And so we long to see you in the pages of scripture so that our hearts might be fed and challenged and drawn closer to you. Lord, we pray also that uh, with this coming year together in Wellspring and in Build, that you would knit our hearts together, that you would unite our hearts um, in a disciplined pursuit of you. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that um, like with any human relationship we have, relationships take work. Um, We have to communicate Um, We need to strengthen our relationships with one another. They don't just naturally happen. And we acknowledge that the same is true with you. Oh, but God, we are so grateful that um, our relationship with you began by grace, by you and you alone being the God who pursues sinners and you save sinners to become worshipers of you. So we acknowledge that our relationship with you began with you and with you alone pursuing us. But now... Um, in Christ and by your Spirit's help and with the Word of God in front of us, we want to um, nurture our relationship with you. We want to grow closer to you. 
And we want to do it together, side by side. And so we pray, God, that you would um, begin that whole process even today. But we look forward to this year together. Pray, Lord, for these here who are, are sitting here this morning, that you would help them to finish well in April and May. And that, God, you would be glorified by what you see um, happen in our hearts as we are transformed more and more into the precious image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, you need to take out your handout, uh, the little paperclip section. At the top, it should say, how build, it'll say, discipline six. Well, it shouldn't say that, but that's okay. Uh, how build and Wellspring fit into uh, vision and purpose of Grace Bible Church. Or it just says the vision and purpose of Grace Bible Church. Okay? At the top of your sheet. So you just take out your notes there and get ready to go. If you don't have something to write with, I think we do have a few more pens and whatnot out at the table. <laughs> so I've got three main points of outline to uh, get to you. This is just busy. I don't even know what happened. There are hands raised back over here. Ah, yes. You do not want to be caught without what you what you need. Very good. All right. Okay. Now, I warn you, don't make me write your name on the board. Okay? Just, right now, I'm just going to lay that law down and... Um, and then you certainly don't want to see check marks behind your name. Because that would be really bad. Okay? Just stars. That's right. You want stars. That's right. All right. Three main points to our outline this morning just to kind of walk you through. Number one, we're going to talk about um, the biblical vision of God that our church has. Um, you'll see this at the top of our bulletin every Sunday when you come in. Uh, a biblical vision of God leads us to our gospel purpose in Christ. So those are our first two points that we're going to cover this morning. Number one, a biblical vision of God. Later in your notes, you'll see number two where it says our gospel purpose in Christ. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about how Build and Wellspring fits into all of that. So uh, what I'm going to do this morning is just walk you through um, where did we come up with this biblical vision of God? What is this glory of God, the cross of Christ, and a life transformed by the Holy Spirit? Where did that come from? What do we mean by that? That's what we're going to talk through. So, number one, a biblical vision of God. What do we mean by a biblical vision of God? I want to start with the word God first and help you understand that what we're talking about is a triune God, a three-in-one God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We're trying to focus on all of them. If you'll notice in our vision of God, there's a triad with it, right? There's the glory of God, there's the cross of Christ, and life transformation by the Spirit. Each one of those is uniquely tied to each one of the three members of the Godhead. God the Father in his glory, the cross or the death of his Son, and a life that is changed by the Holy Spirit. So we're trying to set our sights on a triune God, okay? Because that is who God is in Scripture. What do we mean by vision? We mean that we're, we want to see him. And where do we go to see him? Where do we set our sights on him? We do it in the Bible. Because that is the clearest spot where he has revealed himself to us. And so we want to see him in his scriptures. And then we want to turn and look at ourselves and one another and the world through the lens of his word. 
we want to have vision that sees things as he says they are. Not as what we think, but as he says what they are. And how do we know what he says about things? Through his word. So we're going to the word to see him and we're looking through the word to see everything, including ourselves. We want to understand ourselves rightly according to the word of God. And what do we mean by biblical? I just told you. We're, we want to see by the Bible. Okay? So there's the first little part of a, what do we mean by a biblical vision of God. And it's Trinitarian, as I told you. So let's talk first about the glory of God. The glory of God. This is where we would locate the Father in our triune vision here. But we're not denying the fact that the Son has glory. He does. And does the Holy Spirit have glory? Of course he does. But we're locating it here primarily in the Father here. Uh, A a good assignment for you sometime, uh, one of these years, just as you read through your Bible, just take a pencil and circle the word glory every time you come across it. This would be a good thing for you to do. You'd be very blessed by what you would find and discover by just tracing what the Bible says about God and his glory and what it is. Okay? Well, what is God's glory? Glory means God's weightiness. He's heavy. He's impressive. He's overwhelming. Uh, The Hebrew word is literally heavy. God is heavy. He's too big to carry. He's too heavy to to bear on your own. He's overwhelming. And it's tied with splendor. And, And God's weightiness, his impressiveness, his splendor, his overwhelmingness in the Bible is over and over and over and over tied to radiant, brilliant light. When he reveals himself and Moses is in his glory, in the presence of his glory, Moses comes down the mountain and what about his face? He's glowing and he doesn't even know it. Uh, Jesus, when he is transfigured on the mount uh, and his disciples are there, what happens to his clothing and his skin and everything? He becomes radiant. So God's glory, his weightiness, his impressiveness is always tied to a radiant burning light. Um, in one sense, we know this. In John 1, 18, and by the way, all of your verses are included here for you. And we're not going to have time to turn to every single one, but I encourage you, it'd be really good on your own to go back and look at each one of these passages. Um, a couple of them I'll, I'll lead you to, and the rest you'll have to look at on your own. But John 1.18 says, no one has seen God at any time. So tell me, how many people have seen God? No one. Okay. In Exodus 33, verse 20, God said to Moses, no man can see me and live. We'll look at that passage here in a moment. We are in a condition right now in which we cannot take on the full unveiled sight of God. We can't. It would kill us. That's what God says. But God did communicate himself sometimes to his people and to his prophets in a way that they could receive and it terrified them. And that was his glory, his radiant presence. So there's a sense in which God communicates himself to his people through his glory. His radiant, weighty, impressive, overwhelming, brilliant splendor. And he beams forth towards them and they can take that in. And they're always shocked afterwards that they're still alive. But no man can see God and live. One day we will see him, but we won't be in these bodies. Right? 
So that's what we're talking about in terms of his glory. So let's go to the Old Testament passage that is one of the most impressive. Let's go to Exodus 33, verse 11. Second book of the Bible, Exodus 33, verse 11. What's happening here is uh, Israel has been rescued and delivered from Egypt. They have made it out into the wilderness. They are gathered at Mount Sinai. Um, They have been sitting there. Moses went up on the mountain uh, to receive the tablet from God. And while he was up there, Israel did the most foolish thing that they could, which would be the exact same thing that we would have done had we been there. They made a calf. And they became idolatrous because their hearts are idolatrous like ours. And God is very upset with Israel. And he is saying, I'm not going with you. I'll kill you if I go with you. So I'll send my angel ahead. And Moses pleads with God to come with them. Verse 11. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Then Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. All we know at that point is he said an angel will go with you. And so he's saying, who is this? Who's going to go with us? Moses continues, Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said to him, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. So God says, Okay, I'll go. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us? So that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. What made Israel different than any other nation? They were chosen by God. Just God. Yes, they were chosen by God and God. The reason that they were distinguished is that God's presence was with them and not with the rest of the nations in a unique way. So here they are. They're uniquely different. The Lord said, verse 17, uh, to Moses, I will do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. There it is. Show me your weightiness. Show me your impressiveness. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by, and then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So somehow God is passing by him, and the trailing of himself as he passes by is his radiant, impressive glory. But Moses can't take God full on in sight, or he would die. So there's your Old Testament teaching on the glory of Yahweh. That same glory is spoken of in John chapter 1. If you'll turn there with me, take a look at that. John 1 verse 14. So there is glory also located in Jesus, of course. 
You know this verse, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the interesting um, idea with the verb dwelt, literally you could translate it as tabernacled. Uh, he tented among us. It's the same Old Testament picture from the Old Testament that God came and he dwelled with Israel in tents. And the word became flesh and tented among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So now there's other many passages that are in the New Testament referring to Jesus and his glory and the glory in Revelation 21 of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven where God himself is the light. There's no need for any other light anymore. God just is the light uh, for his people. Now you can pair some Old Testament passages together. Uh, This is interesting. You can take Exodus 33, which is Moses on the mountain that we just read, and you can pair it with Luke 9, verses 28 to 36, where Jesus is on the mountain. He is transfigured. Um, So the glory of God on a mountain in the Old Testament, and Moses is there. And then in Luke 9, the glory of God in Jesus, and Moses is there with Elijah, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures. There's a pairing going on between the Old Testament and New Testament there. There's also two other passages you can pair together. Isaiah 6, another great Old Testament passage where Isaiah sees the glory of God and he wants, or he sees the vision of him in the temple and he wants to die. He thinks he should be undone. Uh, he, he's cleansed by uh, the, the, the coal in the altar. And then in John 12, verses 37 to 41, Uh, John says that Isaiah saw the glory of Messiah, who is Jesus. So who was Isaiah looking at? Pre-incarnate Jesus in all of his glory. So from cover to cover in your Bible, the glory of God is a central theme of the Bible, which is why as a biblical vision of God, one of the first things that we need to be looking at is the weightiness of God in the scriptures. So that's what we want to have set up first. So here's the big so what. What difference does that make? I mean, how does that impact you on a daily basis? Um, We are probably more aware of and concerned to glorify God with our lives. We hear that language. We think of that. And I I want to glorify God with the way that I am as, as as a husband. I want to glorify God in the way that I parent. I want to glorify God as a pastor elder. You want to glorify God in, in wherever it is that God has you in life. And the, the, how can you do that without first going to the Bible and just looking for his glory? You must go to the word of God and drink in his overwhelmingness, his impressiveness, his grandeur, his greatness, his brilliance, his glory. You need to bask in his glory. And in so doing, how will that impact your desire to glorify him? How can you do the one without the other? You're hollowed out trying to glorify God if you don't first come before the word of God to drink in his glory. So that's what, that's the difference it needs to make in your life. Come before the word of God. Position yourself before the word of God to drink in his glory in scripture. Look for his greatness. Look for what uniquely makes him God in scripture every day. The, the men and the women that God used the most were in, in the word of God were those who are most captured by his what? Glory. 
by Him. Okay? So, the glory of God. Secondly, the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. How is Christ's death related to His glory? Have you ever thought of this? Let me take you back to uh, what was going on in the Old Testament for a moment. The glory of God in Scripture is actually inseparably tied to blood being shed by a substitutionary sacrifice, by a substitute dying in the place of the worshiper. Okay? In what sense? Think about this in the Old Testament. God, in all of his glory, was on a mountain, shaking that mountain. It was reverberating, and God said, you better not even let an animal touch it, or it will die. Don't let the people come near it. The people were terrified, and they said, Moses, you go up and talk to him, and come back and tell us, and we'll do everything he says. And so the cloud of his glory is over the mountain. The, the mountain is just shaking. And what God, that glorious God, told Moses, he said, build me a tent. I'm going to, I'm shaking a mountain. The mountain is too small for me. The mountain is being overwhelmed by me, but build me a tent. Put me in the middle of all of your tents and my glory that is shaking this mountain will be in that tent. How do you, that's absurd. And yet that's what God wanted. And everywhere in that tent would be blood. The blood of a substitute. The blood of an innocent substitute. One without sin. Dying in the place of the worshiper. That is how glory is tied to a substitute's blood. And when did that reach its revelational climax in the Bible? At the cross of Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The innocent one dying in the place of those who worship God. So that means that you can't talk about the glory of God in Scripture for very long without what? Getting to the death of Jesus. And you can't talk about the death of Jesus very long without tying it back to this glorifies God. This is a weighty, impressive, splendid God that we have. Now, when we talk about the cross of Christ, what we're not saying is that we're merely uh, interested in a cross. We're not. Uh, we're not uh, interested in a Christless cross. The cross means nothing. How many Roman criminals died on a cross uh, in human history? M- many. What makes the cross unique is the one who died on it. It is a, a cross with Jesus on it. And by emphasizing the cross of Christ, we're not trying to diminish the empty tomb or say that it doesn't matter. It does matter. Um, what we're trying to recognize here is just the importance of a substitutionary sacrifice in the Bible blood being shed by an innocent substitute in our place. The Old Testament type in the Old Testament is Leviticus 16, where you have the Day of Atonement. Two goats brought in. Um, one dies in the place as, an, as a substitute in the temple or in the tent. Uh, the other has the sins of Israel confessed over it, and then it is sent off into the wilderness. And the idea is one goat alone out in the wilderness just dies. It can't live. And there was Israel's idea of an atonement taking place for them. The New Testament teaching on this, it's everywhere. But let's go to Hebrews 9 and take a look at Hebrews 9, verse 18. Hebrews 9, verse 18. 
read a few passages or a few verses here. Hebrews 9, verse 18. It will kind of tie the Old Covenant together with the New Covenant, what happened in the Old Testament with what now is happening with Jesus in the New Testament. Hebrews 9, verse 18. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all of the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all of the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one almost may say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these things, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. You know what? When when Moses was on the mountain with God and he said, build me a tent, I'm going to give you a copy of something. He gave him a copy of what heaven was like. And the tent was designed in a way to be a reflection of what was going on in heaven. Well... And so he set apart that tent and everything about it with blood. And now he's saying, in Jesus, that tent goes away because something better has taken place. Look at this, verse 24. For Messiah, or Christ, did not enter a holy place made with hands, made by men, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, in other words, at the right time, he has been manifested or revealed to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that idea of sacrifice there is a bloody sacrifice. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. By the way, pause. Um, How many times does a man die? Truly, according to the Bible, once. So for somebody to die and then tell you what they saw, they didn't die. Okay, they just didn't. All right. But that's for another time. Verse 28, he was appointed for men to die. It is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes judgment, verse 28. So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait him. Why did he come the first time to wipe out your sin problem? And he's coming again and he doesn't even have to think about sin the next time when he comes for us. And we are what kind of people? We are those who are eagerly waiting for him. Oh, please come. Can you imagine him coming and he doesn't even have to think about your sin because he got it all taken care of the first time? I'll give you a key theological phrase. I wrote it up over here. For those of you in the back, take my word for it. It says penal substitutionary atonement. I tried to write with big letters. I don't know if you can see it. And you may be thinking, oh my goodness, um, we're going to talk theology like this? Yeah. What does this word look like? It looks like that word, right? There's a penalty. Here's the way to think of the cross of Jesus. Here's the way to think of an innocent substitute, Jesus, dying in our place. There was a penalty that had to be paid. My penalty, your penalty that you earned by your sin. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. And he must have the penalty be paid. Well, penalty is paid. But by who? A substitute. Not me. I can't pay the penalty. You can't pay the penalty. But a substitute 
paid the penalty in our place to what? To atone for our sins, which means to bear away our sins out of his presence. It's to take our guilt and our shame out of the sight of God. It is to reconcile us to God. It is to satisfy the wrath of God. All of those ideas together is what atonement means, to be reconciled to God. So if you want a nice, easy way to think about the gospel and want to share it with people, you don't have to say to them, penal substitutionary atonement. But just in your mind, think there's a penalty, there's a substitute, and he atones for our sin. And let that be your little outline that you use to talk about what the cross of Jesus Christ accomplished. Listen to what Paul said. This is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. He said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him what? Crucified. Um, here's Galatians 6, 14 and 15. Here's the difference it made in Paul's life. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul had so much that God revealed to him and blessed him with. He could have boasted on so many things, but he said, may I never boast in anything except one thing. What? Can you you say that? Can you think of your life that way? There's only one thing that I ever want to boast in. Brag on praise. And it's Jesus Christ crucified. So what difference does this make practically speaking? Well, like with the glory of God, you come before the word of God, you position yourself before your Bible as often as you can in order to drink in the weightiness of God. Well, you position yourself daily as often as you can in the Bible so as to drink in his substitutionary death in your place to pay the penalty. You meditate on the gospel. You rehearse the gospel. You preach the gospel to yourself. You come to the Bible to get this gospel over and over and over. What if you don't? You'll forget. You will. Why did did Jesus give us the Lord's table? And what's the main command? Remember. Me. It's the main idea of it. There's two commands, eat, drink, but what is the eating and drinking supposed to be? A remembrance. Why did he tell us to remember him? Because we forget him, and we forget what he did at the cross. So you want to drink in what he did at the cross. Now, the glory of God, the weightiness of God, inseparable from the cross of Jesus, what happens when that touches a sinner's life? That's our third triad transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. Transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is to take this glorious work of God in the cross and apply it to a sinner in time. In human history. So, wrath gets satisfied. Guilt and shame gets taken away. We get reconciled to God. And when that takes place, now think about this, when the Holy Spirit, when the third member of the Godhead takes the death of the second member of the Godhead, which glorifies God, when the Holy Spirit takes that work and touches a sinner's life with it, what happens? A massive salvation takes place. A massive change takes place. Listen, salvation is not merely fire insurance. I don't have to go to hell now. Is that true? Yes. Never want to diminish that. But that's not merely what it means to be saved. The Holy Spirit definitely does a 
sealing work. He, Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14, right? He is the pledge of our inheritance. One day who we are and what we have in Christ will all be revealed and finally realized. And he is the one, he's the down payment in our place of securing everything that God promised that has not yet come to us. But in time, the Holy Spirit brings a new birth, regeneration. And he ushers us into new life. So, penal substitutionary atonement, that in the hands of the Holy Spirit does all of this. Secures you for the future, yes, saves you from hell, but also rebirths you now with a major change. Uh, We could even talk about salvation the way that the Bible talks about salvation in regards to the tenses. In the past, the Bible will talk about you were saved. God saved you in the past. The Bible talks about he will rescue us from the wrath to come. He will save us in the future. And then the Bible also talks about right now, you are what? Being saved. So, well, wait a minute. Am I being saved now because the past salvation didn't work so well? And there's even this, this, this secure future salvation because what's going on presently and in the past wasn't very strong. No, that's just the way how comprehensive God's salvation is revealed to be in the Bible. He saved us, he is saving us, and he will save us. Um, the Holy Spirit's ministry in the New Testament, as you look at it in the life of the believer in Jesus Christ, is one that is undeniably connected to this present being saved that is going on in us. Your daily life, overcoming the power of sin, transforming you more and more into the image of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18, that's being carried out by the Lord, the Spirit. Now let me draw um, a distinction here between regeneration and progressive sanctification. Do you see that in your note? There uh, in your notes, understanding regeneration and progressive sanctification, because both of these are the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Birthing the sinner into a new life before God is rooted in a moment, and it is not a process. Listen, we are not over the weeks and months of our lives being born again. It's not happening that way. It is in a moment of time like a human birth is, it is a moment of time where it is an event that takes place. Okay? So that event, regeneration, inevitably then ushers in a new lifestyle before God, and that new lifestyle lived out over time is a process, and the Bible, we could be, that part of it could be summarized as progressive sanctification. So there's regeneration, which is an event, And then there is this process that goes on and on and on, and that is progressive sanctification, okay? Both both of those two important event and process is is tied to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me talk about it this way. There's one set of fingerprints on your being born again, and it's God's fingerprints. You were born again by His doing. Just like you didn't help your own birth take place, I mean, you're not even aware of your own birth. It happened to you, and other people brought it to pass. Um, Primarily one person, right? Um, Same thing in spiritual regeneration. There's one set of fingerprints on your being born again. And it's his set of fingerprints. It's God's. Now, in your sanctification, in your ongoing living out for Jesus, what he did for you, 
There are two sets of fingerprints on your progressive sanctification. God's, because you cannot sanctify yourself without him. Uh, Paul says in Galatians, uh, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You cannot put on one set of fingerprints on your sanctification process and think you're growing in holiness. God's fingerprints are still on it. In other words, his fingerprints are on your being born again. His fingerprints are on your being progressively sanctified. He is never hands off. There is never a let go and let God. There is never in the Bible that. But what's different in your progressive sanctification compared to your regeneration is that your fingerprints are on your progressive sanctification because he gives to us commands. And I must take those commands, put my fingerprints on them, and implement it into my life. Not because I'm not saved, or because I need to now start working to get saved. None of that. That's justification by faith alone. That's, that's God's fingerprints on my life and my birth then. But now I must apply my, lot, my fingerprints to my growing in holiness. Okay, We'll talk a lot more about that even in the weeks to come. So two sets of fingerprints on our sanctification one set of fingerprint on our conversion. Um, in the Old Testament, can I give you a, just a little side note here? Let's go to John 14 for a moment. Let Jesus summarize. Have you ever wondered what's the difference between, um, or maybe you've wondered, okay, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. What was going on in the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? And what's going on with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? I, I think this passage is one of the clearest And it comes right from Jesus' mouth. He's in his last night with his disciples. And he says this to them in John 14, verses 16 and 17. Watch the the ministry of the Holy Spirit here. I will ask the Father, Jesus says, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Who is this helper? Verse 17, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But then notice this. He's speaking to his 11. Judas is gone by this point. And this is what he says to the 11. You know him. So uh, these are like Old Testament believers. The 11 disciples are believing in Yahweh, who has now revealed himself in the flesh in Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. They are believing in him in the sense, in the way they did in the Old Testament. And he says, you know him. So believers know the Holy Spirit. Old Testament believers know the Holy Spirit. And... He says, you know him because he abides with you. There's the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Uh, and you say, well, that's great, but it really doesn't tell you what that means. Other than he, he was with them. Somehow the Holy Spirit was with the believers in the Old Testament. They couldn't be saved without him. In fact, um, Jesus made that clear to Nicodemus, did he not? How could you be a teacher of Israel and not know that you have to be born again and this is the ministry of the Spirit? It was a given that the Pharisees should have known this. And then look what he says. And he abides with you and he will be, what? In you. All right, so here's the new ministry of the Spirit coming at Pentecost uh, when the Spirit of God comes. So now he won't just be with abiding believers, whatever that means. But now he will actually be indwelling the believers. And that's the benefit that we have that is over the Old Testament believer. New Testament teaching, let's turn to Titus chapter 3 and we'll see this great ministry of the Spirit in our lives. 
causing us to be born again. Titus 3, these are very familiar verses. We'll start at verse 3, Titus 3, verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy. We were hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. One set of fingerprints. He saved us. Not He and we saved ourselves. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Now get this. Deeds which we have done in righteousness. How could, look back at verse 3, how could foolish people, disobedient people, deceived people, enslaved to various lust people and pleasures people, uh, people spending their life in malice and envy, people who are hateful, people who are hating one another, how could they have done anything in righteousness that God would look at and say, hey, that's pretty impressive. He doesn't save us on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but he just saved us according to his mercy. Well, how did that happen? By the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Tell me more about the Spirit. He's the one whom God poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That little verse right there is Trinitarian. God poured out the Holy Spirit through Jesus. Three, maybe we could say there's three sets of fingerprints on our salvation, but not one of them is mine or yours. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. He poured them out upon us richly, so that being justified by his grace, there's the one set of fingerprints, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In Romans 8, verses 10 to 13, it talks about if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body. There's the role of the Spirit in your sanctification process. Galatians 3, verses 3 to 6, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? That doesn't work. Practically speaking, so what? Okay, so we position ourselves to come before the Bible to drink in the weightiness of God. We position ourselves to come before the Bible so that we can see the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ as a substitute dying in our place. And guess what you do in regards to this? You come to the Bible to drink in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you need him. You come back to the, listen, in our brand of theology, we forget the Holy Spirit. Now, there are other brands of theology out there that they think about him in all the wrong ways. But we need to come back to the fact that you cannot live today without him. You cannot live today without the Spirit's ministry in your life. You didn't get into this life without him, and you can't live today without him. And you need to remind yourself to come back to the Word of God to drink in his ministry and his person and who he is, what he achieves in your life. He's often the forgotten or misunderstood member of the Godhead. Sometimes it's just his gifting of believers that gets all of the attention. And is it important that the Holy Spirit gifts his people? It's absolutely important. But that is not the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It is to indwell us. It's his job to indwell us and to empower us to live in holiness for Jesus' sake. We cannot miss that. All right, so there's the biblical vision of God. The glory of God in the cross of Jesus uh, for transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. Now, that does not leave us in a um, 
static position where we're not doing anything. That leads us to number two, our gospel purpose in Christ. Uh, We should be the most active people on the planet because of a triune God's powerful saving work in our lives. What should we be about? Uh, The way that we've tried to summarize it is taking three primary overlapping complementary gospel activities that Jesus described for his disciples. Drawing in, building up, and sending out. So the biblical vision part has a, a three parts, a triad. The glory of God, the cross of Christ, transformation of life by the Spirit. Our gospel purpose has a triad. Being drawn in, being built up, and being sent out. It's three ways of describing what our activity should be. So let's take each one of these one at a time. Let's talk about drawing in. I've got two statements there to help flesh this out. Why don't we turn to John chapter 6 to see that. uh, Firstly, drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work. So there's your blank. It's God's sovereign and saving work. John 6, verse 44 and verse 65. Here's what Jesus said in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. Unless the Father draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. What a great promise. You, know, you, you can't read um, what it means to be a follower of Jesus and in, the, in the New Testament and only think about this life. And be led to think only about this life. That, it, that you're constantly having to face the reality of death and that there will be something afterwards. And he will raise you up. Verse 65. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work. Um, drawing in... Uh, What we mean by that, let me tell you what we don't mean. We don't mean being drawn into a program. We don't mean that people in the community are drawn into an event or even to our worship service. We don't mean like for you personally, like you might do a workplace Bible study. We don't mean that they're drawn into that workplace Bible study. What we mean by drawing in is that sinners are savingly drawn into Jesus by God. That's what we need to be after. We are not satisfied for men or women or boys and girls at summer camps and things like that to be drawn into programs, to be drawn into small group, to be drawn into a worship service, but then have them still not yet be saved. We can't be satisfied with that. Okay? We want something more than that. Now, if an unbeliever participates in a program that we put on, a small group or a worship service, we are thrilled that they're there. But we are not satisfied. Until when? They are drawn in by God the Father, savingly so to Jesus Christ. A second statement that would help flesh this out would be Jesus, Christ, uh, Jesus crucified is God's powerful object of attraction powerful object of attraction in john 12 32 jesus said if i am lifted up and that is a reference to his being lifted up on the cross if i am lifted up on the cross from the earth i will draw all men to myself in first corinthians 1 18 paul said the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but the word of cross to us the ones who are being saved it is the power of god 
What's the power of God? The message about the cross of Jesus Christ, his death as a substitute in our place to pay our penalty. First uh, Corinthians two, one to five. Your faith must not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God that is in the cross and him crucified. So the object of attraction is Jesus and Jesus is the powerful object of attraction. Practically speaking, what does that mean for us um, at Grace Bible Church? It means that we need to think carefully about what we're lifting up before our friends, before our children, before our unsaved family. It means we need to be really careful about what we're lifting up before our neighbors, before our co-workers, uh, before whomever that is not a, a believer yet. Because you have to be asking yourself all of the time, what has power? Whatever it is that God says has power, that's what I must lift up and put before sinners. Okay? You were not drawn into God's saving work uh, by the power of a ministry, by the power of a program, by the power of a workplace Bible study. Those things do not have power. Are they important? Only so as they what? Lift up Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? One of the... I have found myself in the past, when I was a youth pastor, um, wanting to develop relationships with kids. That's what I was supposed to do as a youth pastor. And so I would get these relationships with kids, and it would be really neat to watch these young people uh, who are very different than me, on a different planet than me, and we would develop this friendship. And I could find myself at times being content with that. Maybe thinking that there was some kind of power in that. Sometimes we do this with, as parents with our kids, especially if you've got one or two or maybe all of them, that they, it's, just, it's just a hard relationship. And when they like you, when you're in a season where they really like you, you just really feel like, Whew. And we can kind of feel like there's... Maybe there's something going on here. You know, there's something powerful in this companionship that I now have with my son or my daughter. And look, I'm not trying to poo-poo any of those, those things and say that they don't matter. Look, take whatever you can get. Those things are great. But what has power? It's not my companionship with my son or my daughters. And it's not our Sunday morning service that has power. And it's not a build or a wellspring or anything like that. It's not an outreach thing that you do that has power. Those things are only as good so far as they lift up Jesus Christ and him crucified because that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Right? So as you reach out to unbelievers around you, only lift up what has power. I know um, I've seen believers at times be really excited because they'll befriend an unbeliever and they will take on all of the, the interests of that unbelieving one. And I think there's good heart motives and, and many times in that. They'll go to the movies that they do. They'll take on all of the interests and hobbies or whatever that that person has. And when that unbeliever embraces that believer, you still have no idea what that unbeliever's thinking is towards Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you won't know until you interrupt all of that's going on in that relationship and say, by the way, Jesus Christ crucified for forgiveness of sins is your 
only hope in this world. And if you trust in anything else, you will perish forever. This is what changed me. This is the only thing that can change you. When you say that, and you watch how they respond, now you know what maybe God is or is not yet doing in that life. But you won't know before then. So you can lift up programs, you can lift up companionship, you can lift up friendship, you can lift up all these things and put them in front of people. And I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm saying that you won't know where they're really at until you what? Preach the gospel to them. And that's all a part of the drawing in aspect of ministry. Um, let's talk about building up. There are th- these are, again, drawing in, building up, sending out. These are three primary overlapping complementary gospel activities. By the way, drawing in is not like first grade. <laughs> where when you're done with first grade, you never go back to it. And you don't have to draw, be part of drawing in anymore. And now you just do building up. And then building up is like second grade. Um, it's not like that. These are constantly overlapping. And I want to talk to you about where uh, our building up, being built up fits into... Um, the church is being built up. I put a verse up on the board over here. Hopefully you guys can see it. It's Ephesians 4.16. Why don't you turn there in your Bible? Uh, this is the New American Standard. And I kind of rewrote it a little bit so you can see it maybe a little differently. I, I, but I want you to see this. Ephesians 4, verse 16. Because I want you to think about your personal individual being built up in Jesus. I want you to think about that in light of the way that the Scriptures thinks about it. Ephesians 4. Verse 16, here's what the NAS says. It's one of these typical Pauline sentences. We're we're catching him in the middle of this bigger thing that he's been saying. He says, from whom, and the whom there refers back to Christ in verse 15. So from Christ, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Um, Smed in his little office area has this little uh, sign up that says diagramming saves lives. And he's got it diagrammed. In it. <laughs> so this is kind of a way to diagram. I want you to see this. I, this, is, this brings things to light. The subject of that sentence is the body and it's the whole body. The main verb in that sentence is causes. Causes the growth And it's the growth of the body that he's after. So now just look at that sentence. The whole body causes the growth of the body. That's what God's word says. How does the body of Christ grow? Well, the whole body causes the growth of the body. He he is doing something with the body of Christ where when it is functioning as it should, the body causes the growth of the body. It's an amazing thought. Now, everything else that is said tells you how that takes place. Well, the only way it can take place is if it's from him, Christ. So the body causes the growth of the body when it's from him. And the whole body causes the growth of the body as it's being fitted and held together. So there you are. Now you're starting to see where you are. You must be fitted and held together with others. You can't be apart. Your life cannot be separate. And God is going after a growth that is much bigger than you personally, isn't he? What is he after? He's after the growth of the whole body. Not just you, but the whole body. And to do that, he puts our lives together. We are fitted and held together. And how are we fitted and held together? 
by what every joint supplies. Now, what that means is joint means wherever there's a connection. So we're fitted and we're held together. And at that joint, at that connection, there is a supply or a power. So God has designed it when he takes one saved person, he takes another saved person and their lives connect. Boom, there's power that he has. It's from him. It's not from me. It's not from you. But when our lives are together, there's a supply of power as we're fitted and held together. And now that only takes place, though, as we are each one according to the proper working of each individual part. There you are. There I am right here. Each individual part. That's me. That's you. But guess what? You need to work in the proper way. Your life must be everything that God says it must be. But why? Because he wants you to be built up? Yes. But guess what? You better not stop thinking there. What? He is after something big. He wants his body to cause the body to grow. And you must work the way you're supposed to. And you must have your life put together with others. When you do, boom, there's a power connection. And we're fitted and we're held together and the body grows. The body grows. And all of this is for the building up of itself in love. This, this body that the world looks on should look at this body and say, that's loving. That's loving. So we are to be built up. Should you be built up individually? Or should the body be built up? I love trick questions. <laughs> the answer is yes. So don't, if you've been... What, what practical difference does this make in your life? If you've been thinking about your own personal individual being built up, don't stop. But if that's all you've been thinking about, what? Add to it the Bible, this verse, and connect your life with others. Is that hard? Yes. Is it, is it clean and just always nice functioning all the time, everything firing. No, it's, it's sometimes it's really awful. But we have to overcome that together in the gospel and you put your life next to others. You get fitted and held together to people that aren't like you and you're not like them. And you put your lives together and he does something amazing by his power through his son and it, and it can be a very loving thing. Okay? So there's being built up and then finally sending out. Do you notice how sending out and drawing in are like two different ways of saying the same thing? And you know that one of the best ways that Jesus built up his disciples was by sending them out? So you, it's not like, um, okay, we could say uh, build and wellspring are, are probably more so a, a building up ministry. I think that's safe. Um, but building up, sometimes your best being built up in Christ takes place when you're in the workplace and somebody asks you a hard question or really comes down on you hard about what you believe and you're like going, uh, John 316? <laughs> uh, you know, you're like caught in during the headlights moment and, and boy, does that make you want to be built up and you want to know. So, I mean, these things overlap one another as you're a part of ascending out, living as a sent one in the world and, and seeing others being drawn in and that's hard, that builds you up. So I don't want you to think of these as three separate, distinct things that never touch one another, right? They're overlapping. Um, let's talk about, let me give you four statements to help you flesh out what it means to be sending out uh, or to be a sent one. 
First, God has always been ascending God. Have you noticed that in the Bible? He sent Moses. He sent Isaiah. He sent Jeremiah. He sent Ezekiel. He sent John the Baptist. Over and over, God is a sending God. Secondly, Jesus Christ was sent by his sending Father. Read through the Gospel of John and look for the word sent or send and and circle it every time you'll see it. You'll find it more than 50 times. that's That's a point being made. Jesus, how many times did he say, I did not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So God the Father is a sending God. God the Son is a sent one himself. What about the Holy Spirit? In John 14, verse 26, Jesus said, The Father will send him, that helper in my name. In John 15, 26, Jesus said, He is the one I will send to you from the Father. So the Spirit is sent by the Father, the Spirit is sent by the Son. John 16, 7, he says, I will send him to you. So let me get this straight. God has always been ascending God. Jesus, the Son, was sent. The Holy Spirit was sent. I wonder what a disciple of Jesus will be. Does a sending God, who has two members of the God, has sent themselves, make a disciple who is not a sent one? No. Ascending God only can make a disciple of Jesus who is a sent one. Um, you can see this in John four thirty eight. Jesus said to his disciples, I sent you. In John 17, verse 18, as he's praying to the Father, he said, as you sent me into the world, Father, I have also sent them into the world. In John 20, 21, he said, even as the Father sent me, I also have sent you. In Matthew nine thirty five through chapter 10, verse 5, he says, pray to the Lord of harvest to send out workers into the harvest. And I imagine at that point they might have said, oh, okay, and even stopped and prayed for a moment, and then they realized that they were the ones being sent out. So they were praying for, you know, we all like that idea. Oh, Lord, please send out workers, and then he sends you. Okay, that's eye-opening. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go, therefore, making disciples of the nations, right? Acts 1, verse 8, um, be my witnesses. From Jerusalem to Judea, through Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Practically speaking, your identity. What do you think of yourself often as your identity? My guess is you probably think of yourself as a child of God, which is absolutely precious. There's all kinds of different ways our, um, our identity could be described. As saints, as holy ones. But here's one you need to add to it if, if you haven't already. And it is that you are a sent one. That's your identity. You are... A sent one. A sent one. So see yourself as a sent one. And you may be thinking, oh, you mean like the, the Papua New Guinea thing. Oh, I just there's no way I can do that. Well, you know what? God has you already living in that identity. So be a sent one in your household. Anybody there to care for? God has you as a sent one in your neighborhood. Any people there that need to be cared for? Be a sent one in your church, in the ministries that are here. Especially if you're involved with children's ministry. I mean, how many of those little ones need a sent one in their life on a Sunday? At your workplace, see yourself as a sent one going out. And see the genius of God's best evangelism program. Let's see, what would be a good evangelism program? How about this? Uh, believers would come into contact with unbelievers. That would be good, right? Um, and and let's, let's make it better. 
they would come into contact with him over and over and over and over, like almost daily. Okay, that would be like, if we could program that as a church, that would be like brilliant if we could come up with that. Well, guess what? God did that already. He put you in a workplace where you're around unbelievers all the time, or he put you in a school and you're sitting in a classroom and there's unbelievers everywhere. This church cannot better that. We can't do anything better than that. We can't improve upon that. So take advantage of the genius of God's evangelism program for your life, which is where he has you. In your own little household, you're captivated by little ones around your ankle who need a savior. God, you sent me here. Right? It's perfect. But we overlook that because I think we've been trained to think, well, evangelism really counts when we're doing something that everybody in the community sees us doing. Well, wait wait, a minute. Let me ask you this. What if a church programs something big and they go into a neighborhood and they do it all? And all of the believers go home and, that was cool. You know, there's really something special going on here. And yet none of them live this way where they're at. That's a problem. So live where God has you as a sent one. It's genius. It's better than any, if we were all to count up, if, if I said, I want you to give me the, just give me five people that you see on a regular basis from the grocery store to the place where you work out, to your workplace, uh, to your neighborhood, five people. Every single one of you could come up with, you'd want to make a list of 15 people when you thought about it. Add them all up. There's about 80 of us in this room. What program would reach 400 people better than that? Live as a sent one. That's your identity. Okay? Drawing in, building up, sending out. And what, is the, what are these activities if the gospel is not at the heart of it? There is no drawing in without the gospel. There is no being built up without the gospel. There is no being sent out without the gospel. Look, if there are homeless people around you, feed them. And preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Um, We don't want to say no to those things. All right, so there was a biblical vision of God. There's our gospel purpose in Christ. Now we're ready for number three. And we just have like two hours left, so it's going great. We've got plenty of time. This will go faster. Um, I guess I've got some questions here for you. How do build and wellspring fit within the vision and purpose of the church? It, it, probably the, the easiest place to slot it in, if you think of the glory of God, the cross of Jesus, and the transformation of life by the Spirit, and you think of drawing and building up and sending out, one sense you could think of it as almost sitting between them, that what we want to help you grow in is that you would set your sights on God in the Bible more and more and more. We want you to be disciplined with dragging your heart before the Bible on a daily basis to see who God is, to meet with him there, to worship that triune God in all of his glory. And then, obviously, as a, as a ministry, build uh, sounds more like, guess which one of the triad? Uh, being built up, right? And so that's where Wellspring and build fit into our program, our, our vision and purpose statement. Um, l- let me tell you briefly about how Build and Wellspring, how the elders see these two ministries relating to other ministries in the church. Um, Build and Wellspring is not a; these are not a substitute for small group participation. We want you in small group ministries. Um, it is okay to be starting in Build uh, or Wellspring and not yet be in a small group. But guess what? By the end of the year, what, what do we want for you? We want you to be in a small group. And guess what will impact your ministry in your small group very well? 
is if you've been here because you'll be thinking about things in a way that everybody else is thinking about them and you'll be thinking about them hopefully in a way that the Bible thinks about them and you'll be able to care for people very well. Um, so we want you in a small group at the church um, so they're not a substitute for a small group. And if you need any help with that, you can come talk to me. You can talk to Lori uh, on the gal side and we'll help you out with that. Second question, how do Build and Wellspring build up the believing men of Grace Bible Church specifically? Uh, I'm going to highlight the, the first three disciplines. They're on the back of your notebook. Uh, you'll go over these every single time you're together in Wellspring and in Build together. But the first three, the guys have, by the way, five. The girls have three. So if you're looking for your first three ladies, they're your only three. Um, but we, what I want to do is I want to talk about each one of them briefly without giving their title. I just want to talk about it first, and then I'll give it its title. Uh, there are three basic core spiritual disciplines that are foundational. Um, the first discipline is all about how you as a believer worshipfully pursue God through his word, through the Bible. Um, your interaction with the Bible must be nothing short of worship. Nothing short of an expression of love for Jesus, an expression of need for Jesus, a desire to know him better. Have you ever opened your Bible and said, I am here because I want to worship you, God. I'm here because I love you. I'm here because I need you. I'm here because I want to grow in my fear of you. I'm here because I want to grow in my knowledge of you. Those are the kinds of things that we're after in terms of your interaction with the Bible. And this is a discipline. It's a discipline. Um, it takes discipline to ensure that worship takes place when your Bible is open before you. It is not safe to assume that because you're a Christian and because your Bible is open before you, that you will automatically worship because, well, I'm a Christian and my Bible's open. How many times have you opened your Bible as a Christian and walked away going, I have no idea what just happened? <laughs> it doesn't just happen. You have to discipline yourself. You have to control yourself so that it does happen. So the first spiritual discipline is foundational to your being built up in Jesus Christ. How is it possible to be built up in Jesus Christ if you are not worshipfully pursuing God through his word? How? And the way that we like to say it is this. We come to the word of God to meet with what? The God of the word. We don't want just words. We're not there to check off a box so that when we go to a small group, we can say, yeah, I read my Bible. Now we come to the word of God because we want to know the God of the word. Okay. The second core spiritual discipline within Build and Wellspring is purposefully then impacting your household relationships first as one who loves the word of God and the God of the word. So becoming a woman or a man who thirsts for God in and through his word, that should impact the people that you live with first. Uh, they should feel that impact of your worshipful pursuit of God through his word before anybody else feels it. If you're a son or a daughter still living at home, um, listen, your siblings, your parents need to catch something of the aroma of your worship of God in Jesus Christ through the word of God. Change the way that you view your household relationships. Are you a single man or a single woman living with roommates? Change the way you view them. See the souls of those who live with you as souls which you must impact first for Christ's sake. Um, it's actually hypocritical to show little to no care for your roommates 
while you're single all the while trying to persuade your fiance that it'll be different with her or him? Okay. What if you live by yourself? I know some of you are single and you live by yourself. Um, here's what I've seen our singles do who are in that situation. I've seen them use their homes in amazing ways to bring people into their home frequently so that they are um, impacting other lives in their household. That's good practice. That, that's just pleasing to God. But it's also good practice for when you get that forever roommate, right? Um, one of the greatest problems in the local church is the devastating spiritual game called leapfrog, where a man leapfrogs over his own heart, and he leapfrogs over his household, and he jumps in the ministry because there's just a huge need, and he's, I mean, he's pretty gifted at what he does, and so he just goes after it. And in the rearview mirror are wives and children and things like that. And women are capable of the same thing. Uh, it's a devastating game that happens so with a heart eager to worshipfully draw near to God in his word, seek to bring your life up close and personal to those you live with in your household. Care for those souls first. Care for them well. The third core spiritual discipline is now that in that condition, you'll be ready to step into the lives of other people outside your home. You will be. Um, whether it's in your church or outside your church. So as one who's worshipfully, lovingly pursuing God through his word, and as one who's caring really well for your household relationships, your ministry to other people outside of your household, um, beyond the walls of your church, in your church, then that ministry has integrity. You know why it has integrity? Because what you are with those people is what you are in your household, is what you are when you're all by yourself with your Bible open. Need to be the same person in all places. That's integrity in ministry. Um, one of the worst mistakes a church can make is simply to assume that its believers are doing these things. Um, sometime I'll tell you the story about how this all even just impacted me. I realized as a pastor and elder that I wasn't doing these things well. And it was a year of turmoil coming to grips with it personally. And it was when I was at another church, and when I came here, and as I was finishing up my time there, and, and as I came here, um, I just talked with the elders. We all talked together about we will not assume that believers are pursuing God in his word, worshipfully so. And we will not assume that they're caring for their households all by themselves. They just know this, and they're doing it. They just wake up, and it happens somehow. We won't assume that, and we won't assume that they're stepping into ministry of others, having given thought to these things. We are going to address them as I think they are, spiritual disciplines. How do we title these three things? Discipline one, the heart. Discipline two, the home. Discipline three, the ministry. Okay? Shepherd your heart. Shepherd your household. Step into ministry and care for people in that order. Okay? And again, not first grade, second grade, third grade. Okay? We're in first grade. You shepherd your heart. Now, I've done that well this year. I don't ever have to worry about that again. You will never graduate from any of these things. I've been teaching this for 11 years at this church. And I want to keep doing it until I die. I need it personally. Question three. Why does discipline one, the heart, hold such a primary place in build and in wellspring? Um, let me focus a little bit more on discipline one, the heart. Um, if you are a man or a woman who is full of worship of God, love for God, and you're seeing your need for God, and the word of God is your lifeline connection to God every day, wherever you go, whatever you do, whomever you interact with, you will be the kind of man or woman that God would love to work through. 
You will be. That doesn't mean you have all of the answers. That doesn't mean you are a profound theologian or a great apologist of the faith. But it means that you are a clean vessel in his hand to use however he wants. Everything in your life will become kind of hollow and vain if you are not that kind of believer. If you're not drawing near to God to know him through his word and you're trying to step into other people's lives, you're a hollow man. You're a hollow woman. So this is why the heart is very important. So what do we mean exactly by the heart? You're going to talk about this a lot the next time. But what does the Bible mean by the word heart? I know what we mean when we say heart. Put some heart into it. Oh, you just don't know my heart. Um, But what's more important is not what we mean, but what does the Bible mean, right, when it says heart? Um, The heart is the inner man or the inner woman before God. It's who you are inwardly before God. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 4 is a great, has a great little statement in there. It is the hidden person of the heart. It's a person who's hidden, and it's at the heart level. Take away your physical body, and guess what? Do you exist? Yes. You still exist in heart form. The inner man, the inner woman is housed within a body, but you're not dependent upon your body for your existence. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, through, uh, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So what is your heart? It is you. Inwardly speaking, it's you. Let me tell you what your heart is not. Your heart is not a piece of you. It's not a piece of you like your hand is a piece of you, a part of you, a portion of you. It, your heart is not merely your emotions. It's not merely your feelings. So what we aim for in discipline one is what we call shepherding your heart. Now, if your heart is you, what do we mean by shepherding your heart? Shepherd you. Control you. Shepherd you. Minister to your inner being, who you are before God. And primarily, you're leading your inner person, your inner man, your inner woman to the word of God to interact with God in a worshipful manner. That's at the heart of what it means to be a believer. Okay, in Jesus Christ. So the whole reason that you're that you can even do this spiritual discipline of shepherding your inner man or inner woman to the word of God, to know God is if he has saved you. This is not possible if you are an unbeliever. You must be a believer in Jesus Christ for this to take place. You're going to spend a lot more time the rest of the year talking about this very kind of thing. Um, let me drop down to uh, question four. What is the history behind Build and Wellspring and how are they related to each other? Uh, we started Build 11 years ago at the church. Um, and it was it existed first. I forget. Wellspring has been, is this the fifth year or the sixth? This is sixth year we're doing Wellspring. Wellspring is kind of the women's version of that for uh, what the men, what we're trying to do with the men, and guys will talk about this more once the ladies leave the room because it's really secret and we can't have the men. <laughs> but what we're talking about men being leaders. Guys, did you know you are leaders? God, just by the very fact that you're male and you're saved, you're a leader in your household. household. Um, and so we want you to be the best spiritual leader that you can be. And ladies, God has given to you in Titus 2 an amazing ministry to each other that elders can't have with women in the church. And that 
men can't have with women in the church. There's a unique role that older women have with younger women in the church, and it needs to be firing on all cylinders. And so Wellspring is about women being able to shepherd their hearts well, care for their families well, and step into the lives of one another well so that it's firing on all cylinders the way that it needs to be. Um, So we started Wellspring about six years ago um, with the hope of uh, this ministry, both of these ministries, um, helping men and women be the godly men and women they need to be. Uh, Wellspring comes from your... Your verse in Proverbs 4, verse 23. Ladies, you'll talk about that some more. Now, I'll end it there, but I want to talk a little bit about Bible reading plans because I want the ladies to hear this, and then guys will talk about it a little bit more. Um, So this is just kind of a little footnote down at the bottom, and then we'll take a break and split up here. Um, Bible reading plans. Here's your primary goal. Here's your primary homework this year. Your primary homework. I know you've got a yellow sheet. And next week it'll probably be blue. Uh, The next week it'll probably be green. That's your homework. But your primary homework is to be in the Bible every day, drawing near to the God of the Word, worshipfully so. That's your primary homework. And so we're going to help you. Uh, We're going to walk with you. We get to walk together. We get to stumble together. Uh, and do that well and then show up in two weeks and go, you know, I read my Bible really well for two days and the last 12 days have just been awful. And you'll be sitting there in a group of people and they'll go, me too. And you will all like pinky swear together. Well, we won't do it the next two weeks that way. It'll be different. And you'll help each other and you'll pray together and you'll walk together um, trying to help each other. But your primary goal, your primary homework is to bring your heart to the Word of God, to meet with the God of the Word, okay? Now, I want to tell you this, though. Uh, you're, I think, Lori, you'll probably go over the individual ones, the, the different reading plans that are there. Uh, there's a whole bunch of reading plans, different reading plans in your notebook. We'll show you where they are in a moment uh, when we split up. But I want you to hear where the elders are at, um, where we, we kind of set up a goal for the men and the women of the church, and, and definitely the men without exception, is we may be way down at the bottom of the hill looking way up high at a a lofty, faraway goal, but the goal that the elders have is that you would be reading your Bible through every year. Read through your Bible once a year. Okay? That's a goal. Now, you may say today, um, I haven't read my Bible in 10 days. How's that? And that's kind of the way it goes. How am I going to do that? That may not be the place for you to start. Uh, There may be another place for you to start. That's a little simpler, a little easier to work out so that you're practicing the spiritual discipline well. Because the the answer is not, okay, I'm not drawing near to the word of God to meet with the God of the word really much at all. The the, the correction is not uh, read five chapters of the Bible every day and check it off. If that's all you do, you will have missed it, right? But at some point, especially for the men, but even for yourself, Can you imagine reading through the Bible every year? Can you imagine what that would be like 10 years later? Can you imagine being able to say, I've read through the Bible 12 times. I know a lot of people who read the Bible twice a year, three times a year. Imagine if you are, uh, you have to leave your, your loved ones. You can't be with them. You're deployed. You have to go away for business. And the only way that you can communicate with them is to write them actual physical letters and put it in the mail, and it comes. 
And, and for while you are apart, that is the best that your family can have of you while you are gone. Is if they would have those letters. Those words are somehow the best that they can have of you. Imagine when you came back at the end of that long trip and you sent ten letters. And you sat with your, your loved ones and you said, did you read my letters? And they said, oh yeah. We read four of them. And we read them over and over, the same four, because it was like, our, our, did you open the other six? No. What? I, I brought you ten. I mean, that's what we're like as Christians. We pick out four or five or six of our favorite books of the Bible, and we read them over and over. And for how many years have we been doing that? Ten? Twelve? Fifteen years? Boy, we've got James down. We go to the Proverbs, we go to the Psalms, look, don't read them less, what, but what's the point? God, the, what is the best you can have of God right now? He's indwelling you, it's glorious. His son richly uh, is in you, and his word richly dwells in you. But what is the best you can have of him? Is, is by coming to the word of God and seeing him here. Don't read four out of his ten letters. Read all of them. Don't be content until you're moving in that direction. Start that climb now. And uh, that's what we're after here, okay? So we'll get you going on a Bible reading plan, and you need to have that picked out by October 1. And um, I think that'll do it for what we're doing here. So um, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray in a moment, but we're going to take a break. You can get something more to eat and a drink. And we're going to pull back together at 8.30. Guys, you'll be in here. And gals, there'll be a few rooms down. Uh, you can use the bathrooms down there. But take about a 10-minute break after I pray. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, our, our prayer is that um, you would take these very feeble efforts of ours. We are weak men and women in desperate need of you. And we recognize that we must know you and know you better. And we recognize that your word is central to that process of getting to know you and nurturing a relationship with you. So, Father, would you help us to take a step forward just today? This is the day that you have given to us. You have not given us a week ahead of time or a month or a year or a decade, but you've given to us today, and we can faithfully uh, respond to what you have for us in your word today. Help us, and help us to do it together, Lord. Grow our lives together that we would be a, a church family that is gracious towards one another but is also eager to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We need each other but most of all, we need you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.